If you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Isaiah 1, 10. Over the years, I've participated in many worship services. Probably hundreds over the years. And I've visited uh, churches where they've had worship services. And oftentimes, I'll come out of that uh, worship service thinking, wow, that really touched my heart. And what happened there really did honor the Lord. And this is especially important as we enter into this time uh, during the Passover and Easter celebration, probably one of the most important times aside from Christmas church celebrates their Lord. There's other times I'll come out of a worship service and I'll kind of scratch my head and I'll think, eh, what was that about? (laughs) Maybe if we had time for testimonies, each of us could have some times when we've been in worship service and we've been greatly lifted up and there's other times we're thinking, huh, what went on there? When we talk about worship services, oftentimes we're always thinking about how it affected me. Wow, I was really blessed, or I was, eh, I didn't understand that. What they, why did the pastor say that? Why did the pastor do that? But see, that's really not the important thing. The important thing is, what does the Lord think about our worship services? Well, if that's a question that you had in mind, you're going to be glad that you're here this morning because we're going to talk about that. In our text, Israel is still in Jerusalem. This is before the Babylonian captivity. They're there. They have the temple. They have all the accoutrements of worship. And the Lord talks to them about how he views their worship services and what he would have them to do. That's the context, but let's not make this just a history lesson, because there are some lessons and there are some principles found in this chapter that would apply to the people during Isaiah's time, but also it would apply to people during Jesus' time. It would apply to people in the 10th century and the 21st century. No matter what the culture is, no matter what the time, they are timeless things arising from the scripture. So... Let's take a look, and uh, since the cha- we're going to finish the whole chapter this morning, I'll read a few verses and make some comments. The first thing, first lesson, the first insight we get is, is found in verses 10 through 15, where it says, the Lord views strictly external worship as worthless. The Lord views strictly external worship as worthless. Let me read. Verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiple sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings, no longer incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity, the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. 
They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing with, with them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. The Lord views strictly external worship as basically worthless. Now, in verse 10, he continues on with the same theme he had in verse 9. Remember what he said the last time we were back? Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he goes on in verse 10 and says, here's the word, hear the word of the Lord. Now, he's not saying that they're Sodom and Gomorrah. He's saying they're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's a difference between Sodom and Gomorrah and Jerusalem. He had made a covenant with the people of Jerusalem. He had made a covenant with the people of Israel. He hadn't made a covenant with Sodom and Gomorrah. So notice what it says. Unless the Lord of hosts, unless he had been with us, unless he had given us a few survivals, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. But the problem is they're acting like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the problem. Then, in verses 11 and following, he lists all the activities that are taking place in the temple. All of them quite biblical. All of them found in the scriptures, injunctions that when they do worship the Lord, they should do these things. Take a look with me. There's sacrifices, there's burnt offerings, there's um, incense offerings, there's assemblies of the new moon and Sabbath, uh, festivals, there's lifting up their hands in prayer. All of these things are found in the Hebrew scriptures in joining them to worship. But did you notice his response to them? He says, I've had enough of you, of your burnt offerings. Uh, bring your worthless offerings. They're an abomination to me. I hate your festivals. Now, why does he say that? He says that because that which they were doing in the temple is in complete contrast to the way they're living their lives besides coming to the temple. Strictly external worship is seen as worthless. Worthless. Because real worship starts in the heart but proceeds in how you act apart from worship. I, I wrote down a few scriptures found in the balance of the Hebrew scriptures. Proverbs 15.8 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor, Proverbs 21.13 he will also cry himself, and he will not be answered. Proverbs 28, 9. He who turns his, away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Hmm. Psalm 66, 18. If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So they're doing everything right externally, but there's a problem. And he gives us the answer in the second half of verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. 
Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. And here's the reason. Your hands are filled with blood. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that even though they're doing everything right, as enjoined in the scriptures, their lives are inconsistent with what they're living the rest of the time. And so what they're doing is seen as worthless and abomination in the eyes of the Lord. So you can see it that way, but you can also see it quite literally that their hands are filled with blood. What do you mean, Pastor Neil? Well, you have to understand, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel worshipped false gods. The god of Baal is one of them. And in the worship of Baal, it included a lot of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. They had cult prostitutes in many of these temples. But they also had a practice, and the practice was what they called having your children pass through the fire. Hmm, what's that? What they would do, these pagan sacrifices, they would take the children that oftentimes were produced by the rampant sexual morality that was taking place in the temple, they would take those children that were outside of the normal husband-wife relationship and would cause them to pass through the fire, which means they would burn these babies, these unwanted children, in their worship sacrifices. That was part of the pagan culture of the day. Horrible. However, many of the Jews had begun to worship Baal. And they were doing the very same thing. So he says to them, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen to you because your hands are covered with the blood of the babies that you're offering up, passing them through the fire. Their external worship was worthless. Now, am I making too much of this parallel with what's been happening in our country? Since the mid-60s, rampant sexual immorality. And since 1973, since 1973, well over 40 million, up to 50 million children have been aborted in our country. With the complicit, the full complicit of our government, the legislature, the courts, and even the presidency, with their full backing. Am I making too much? Is you wonder why? What's going on in our country right now? Do you see what's going on in our country? Our country is being torn apart. Do you wonder why? I wonder what happens when the Lord looks down and sees. Many of our legislatures, many of our judges, many of our executives offering up prayers as they conclude their messages by saying, and may God bless these United States. As they offer up their hands and God looks down at them and he says, "Uh, really? Is that what you want me to do? When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you, yes, I will not listen, your hands are covered with blood. 
many times. The Lord is not pleased with what is taking place in our country. We need to pray and ask for God's grace and mercy because we deserve, as a country, far less than his grace. May God's grace bless our country. I pray that's true. So, the Lord views strictly external worship as next to worthless. Worthless. Okay. If that is true, and it is, what's the answer? What is the answer? Stop worshiping the Lord. No, 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 no. That's not the answer. He gives us the answer in verses 16 and 17. The Lord requires a life with as little hypocrisy as possible. Let me repeat that again. The Lord requires a life with as little hypocrisy as possible. Let me explain by reading verses 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the widow, plead, defend the orphan, excuse me, and plead for the widow. The Lord requires a life with as little hypocrisy as possible. Now, some might say, wait, wait, wait a minute, I, I don't fully understand what you mean. What verses 16 and 17, they are not calling us to sinless perfection. This is not sinless perfection. You have to see it from their perspective. From a Jewish perspective, they had the temple. If they sinned, they would bring the sin offering, the guilt offering, and they could find forgiveness through their offerings. That was part of who they were. Now, from the New Testament perspective, we have 1 John 1, 9. Amen? If we confess our sins, we are, he's faithful and righteous to cleanse our sins, cleanses our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have, we have that ability. Matter of fact, he says in 1 John verses 8 through 10, if you say that you have no sin, you make him a liar. His word is not in you. The truth, you're, you're not handling it right. So verses 16 and 17 are not calling for sinless perfection in order for him to accept our worship. Rather, they're calling for a life of integrity Seeking to do good, as much good as we possibly can, with humility. With humility. Now, do you remember how Jesus dealt with the religious people of his day? The leaders? What did he call them? Hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? The word in Greek is hupokrito. Hupokrito. I remember Chuck used to say that. Hupokrito. And Hupokrito is an actor on the stage of life. So when we saw these people here, were those real angels? No, they were acting as angels. Um, so a Hupokrito, a hypocrite, is a person who pretends to be what he's really not. Who pretends to be what he's really not. But he's not asking, God is not calling you to sinless perfection in this life. Um, I came across the scripture, Micah 6, 8. It's from the New Testament perspective, from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew scriptures, 
This speaks clearly to them, and it also speaks to us. Look what he says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, from the New Testament perspective, we have 1 John um, 1, uh, I think it's around 1, 8, 1, 7. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That's, that's in 1 John, first chapter. And what is he talking about? He's not talking about sinless perfection. He's, he's walking humbly before God, recognizing when you fall short, seeing your own faults and failures, and finding forgiveness through the Savior. Now, many times, people get this whole process confused. The process from being a sinner to being in heaven with Jesus. Okay? So you have justification. That's when you're saved. That's when you come to know the Lord. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. You don't do anything but just respond in faith to Jesus. Is that not true? But there is then the sanctification process. That's the process that we're in right now. Living, kind of walking in the light, trying to be more and more like Jesus. That process will continue to the day you die. And then there's glorification. Glorification is the process when you are perfect and you are sinless. Without sin, hallelujah. Now oftentimes... People get those, they slop over into people's theology, okay? A couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a dear friend of mine. I've known him for 44 years. Chappie Valenti. Jim knows Chappie. Jim brought him to the King's Hacienda. He told me the story, Jim. Carl Valenti. And Carl went through Bible school with me, and then he went to Vanguard University with me, and we both graduated. And I went on to seminary, and Carl got a job in a rather large denomination. I won't know the name of it, but they believe in total sanctification. Do you know what that means? That you're sinless. What? Yes. They believe you can be totally sanctified, even now. Well, Carl, being who Carl was got fired from that job because <laughs> he wouldn't teach that particular doctrine because it's not true. You will be totally sanctified when you're given a new body in the resurrection and not until then. So sometimes what happens, people trying to hurry you along in your sanctification, they'll take some of the sanctification process and attach it to your justification. No, 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 no. Don't let them do that to you. You are saved by faith. And there's no work that you can do. And don't let them, other people, they'll attach the glorification to your sanctification. But no, don't let them do that either. It's a process. And he calls us. He calls us to walk humbly before our God. He calls us to walk in the light. And when we walk in the light, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin and our worship is acceptable 
to him and pleasing and honoring to him. Okay. Well, if this is true, if he calls us to walk in the light, if he calls us uh, to Micah 6.8, how does that happen? Come on along with me. Verses 18 and 19. The Lord calls us to reason together with him. The Lord calls us to reason together with him. Let me read the verses. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. They're red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord calls us to reason together with him. Reason together with him. Now, how's this process happen? Now, some would see this process as the Lord being in total control, and he is sovereign. And we're looking at a gigantic uh, spiritual chess game, and the Lord moves us, and he tells some, you're going to heaven, and the other tells, no, you're not going. The Bible doesn't teach. That's called determinism. Now, is God sovereign? Absolutely. Did you do anything to earn your salvation? No. Every one of us would know if I had asked you, uh, what did you do to earn your salvation? You'll say, I didn't do anything. I didn't find God. God found me. He found me. But yet we see in his sovereign will and his wonderful work in our lives, a work by the Spirit of God, a work by the Word of God, a miracle indeed that moved us from crimson red sinners to white precious saints in his eyes. How does that process happen? It's a miracle. It's a miracle that Jimmy is sitting right in that chair. It's a miracle that I'm up here preaching. You're a miracle. But did you notice? What does he say? Come now, let us reason together. Come now, let us reason. If you consent and obey, you see there's a response. God is sovereign. God is choosing us. But we must yield to him. We must obey. We must heed the words. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. It says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not in there to send us to hell. He's calling us to himself. Come, let reason, listen to the gospel, respond to Jesus. The Lord calls us to reason together with him. The question that would come up, come again to our mind is, well, why should we reason together with the Lord? Why should we do that? Well, verses 21 and 23 give us the answer. Because the Lord knows the truth. The Lord knows the truth about you. (laughs) The Lord knows the truth about me. Read the verses. Let's read along with me. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She was full of justice, righteousness, once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted water. Your rulers are rebels, companion of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. 
They don't have to defend the new orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. The Lord knows the truth. You see, there had been times in the past when Jerusalem was called what? The faithful city. She who was full of justice. They were seen as silver, as fine wine. But now, look at them. Their righteousness has now become a city full of murderers, a city full of harlots. The silver has now become dross, the leftover of the refining process. Your fine wine has become diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, companion of thieves. Everyone You see, Jerusalem is still there. The temple was there. The walls were there. Everything looked great. But he could see through the exterior of their actions, of their words. He knew what was in their heart. And he called them out. The Lord knows the truth. See, they look, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can never fool the Lord because he looks right through. He sees. We're playing a little shell game, pretending, and everybody thinks we're doing really well. But the Lord knows your heart, and guess what? He knows my heart too. He sees the truth about you. And he, he doesn't put you down. He's, you're playing this little game, and look what he's saying. Come now, come, come on, come on. Come reason with me. Hear the words. He knows the truth about us. You see, the first step in moving to acceptable worship is seeing your faults as the Lord sees them and finding the blood of Christ to cleanse you from all sins, agreeing with the Lord, humbly walking with him in the light. He's not put off by our little game we're playing. Not at all. Not at all. He's not willing that any should perish. He calls out to all of us, come, reason with me. Hear the word of truth. Consent and obey. I came across a scripture, another one. Psalm 69, verses 5 and 6. I'll read it slowly so you can think about it. Oh God, it is you who know my folly and my wrongs are not hidden from you. See, he knows. But listen, this is the verse, the second verse, verse six. Should be the heart of every pastor, every church leader, every Christian. Every Christian who goes to church and has a bumper sticker on his car and who lives a life supposedly for Jesus. Listen to these. This is the second half of the verse. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O God of Israel. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Let me read that again. That's worthwhile. Let it sink in. Let it percolate down through your heart. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O God. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. The Lord knows the truth. 
And he calls us. He calls us to reason together and listen to find that forgiveness that only comes through Christ. The Lord knows the truth. Okay. Quickly. Final thing that we see, and it really kind of wraps up the whole package, so to speak. Why should we know that external worship, strictly external worship is worthless? Why should we live with as little hypocrisy as possible? Why does the Lord call us to reason together with him? And then the Lord knows the truth. Why are these important? Final final thought. Because the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. He's faithful to do three things. Three things he's faithful to do. Let's read the passage. Beginning in verse 24. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on the foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye, and I will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as first and your counselors at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired. And you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. Those were the places of false worship. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away. Or is a garden that has no water. The strong man will become a tinder. His work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together. And there will be none to quench them. Three things that the Lord is faithful to. First, he's faithful to discipline those whom he loves. Verses 24 through 26. He will discipline. Now, whenever grace, real grace is preached, people say, oh, okay. So you can just receive Christ and then you can just live however you want. Right? Because if I confess my sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive my sins. And then, you know, so I can just sin and confess, sin and confess, sin and confess. Now, at first look, it seems like that's what we're saying. But wait, 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 wait. You forgot one thing. See, his grace delivers you from judgment. But it does not deliver you from the Lord's discipline. (laughs) You forgot that. (laughs) My friends, my friends, it says in Hebrews chapter 12, God disciplines those whom he loves. And guess who he loves? You. (laughs) He loves you. And he will discipline you. And then it goes on and it says, and he will get this scourge. Do you know what scourging is? Now, the problem oftentimes we have is uh, we want, We want people, see, and so we set up rules to help them in their sanctification process. You can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. But wait, 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 you forgot one thing. The Lord, 
Legalistic churches, see, they're in the, in the business of helping the Holy Spirit move along in your sanctification. There's somebody much bigger involved. And let me tell you, he will bring you to a place, if you have given your life, he will bring you to a place where you will say, I will never do that again. <laughs> He'll do it. Trust me. Because he has done it to me many, many times. The Lord will faithfully discipline those whom he loves. Take him seriously. What does it say in the Bible? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living, living, angry God. You want to watch? You want to walk in the fear of the Lord. Do you know what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord? Uh, you know that he will discipline you. As a father disciplines his children, not to hurt you, but to bring you back to that place where you're not dishonoring the Lord by your words or your actions. He will discipline you. Secondly, verse 27, he will redeem his people. He will redeem Israel. (laughs) It says in Romans that all Israel will be saved. He will redeem Israel. That's his promise. He has, a, he has a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel, and he will accomplish it. And thirdly, he will judge those who forsake him. He will judge those who forsake him. He is faithful. Now, the way this age is, uh, everybody says, well, you Christians have been talking about the second coming of Christ for 2,000 years, and no Christ. Oh, fooey. Jesus is not coming back. He's not going to judge the world. Really? See, that's the spirit of the age. All things continue as they always have from the beginning. That's the spirit of the age. But I'm telling you, God is faithful to his word. It's money in the bank although it's not a lot of interest right now. It's money in the bank. It's money in the bank. He said it, he's coming back, and he will hold everyone accountable. And those who have not reasoned together, those who have not consented and obeyed, will come under the judgment of God. As sure as I'm standing here, that will happen soon. (laughs) Soon. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And when we do that, we honor the Lord in our worship services, and we're pleasing to him. Pray with me, please. Father, we open up our eyes, the word this morning, in reverence. We want our worship services and what we do here in this building to honor you. We don't want to dishonor 
you or cause people to be ashamed by what we say or do, both in this building and in the rest of the time throughout the week that we spend working and living among those around us. May your word speak clearly to each saint, to each person that's here this morning. May the Spirit of God stir our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.